Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, it's not hard to see, indeed it's hard not to see, how the initial Minneapolis Police Department account of George Floyd's death, man dies after medical incident during police interaction, would have been the last word, were it not for intervening factors. One was the witnessing of teenager Darnella Frazier, whose historical act deserves a serious responsive effort to protect and respect citizen reporters and to fight racist policing, more so than pats on the head like that from the Washington Post's Margaret Sullivan about her pure motivations and moral core, and another being the unprecedented multiracial protests Floyd's murder kicked off. If the verdict is testament to the power of protest, so too are the vigorous efforts to squelch that power. We'll talk about that with Ellie Page, legal advisor at the International Center for Not-for-Profit Law and founder of their U.S. protest law tracker. Also on the show, after the Supreme Court ruled last summer that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act protects workers from discrimination based on sexual orientation and transgender status, the Washington Post's Jennifer Rubin wrote that, quote, while we might be slow in getting there and are diverted time and again, Americans can eventually be prevailed upon to come down on the side of fairness, equality, inclusion, and simple human decency, close quote. The notion that civil rights just expand naturally without struggle and that justice delayed is fine isn't serving trans kids as right-wing legislators target them at the state level right now. We'll hear from Christy Mallory, legal director at the Williams Institute based at UCLA's School of Law. That's coming up this week on Counterspin, brought to you by the Media Watch Group FAIR. The guilty verdict in the Derek Chauvin case did not leave things as settled as some would like to hope. But one thing was made clear, the power of protest. There is simply no way the prosecution of a police officer for the on-duty killing of a black man would have gone so far without millions upon millions of people around this country and the world going out into the street. Some reckon protests over George Floyd's murder were the largest in this country's history and the most diverse. And that's why some are eager to shut that down. Listeners may know about Florida's HB1, what Governor DeSantis claims is a law to crack down on agitators. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of state and federal efforts to prevent U.S. citizens from doing what we all know we will only be doing more and more of, coming together publicly, using our numbers to fight for societal change. Ellie Page is Senior Legal Advisor at the International Center for Not-for-Profit Law and founder of ICNL's U.S. Protest Law Tracker, which is just what it sounds like. She joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Ellie Page. Thanks, Janine. Well, let's leap right in. The tracker launched in 2016, I'm guessing for reasons, and I'm guessing also that the reasons have only increased since then. What are the sorts of things that you are seeing that 
concern you? Yeah, so thanks. So we have been, as you say, tracking these anti-protest laws and bills for over four years now. And really what we've seen since last summer is a distinct escalation from prior years. So we've seen over 90 bills introduced in 35 states since last summer and the killing of George Floyd that would restrict or chill the right to peacefully assemble and protest. It's an unprecedented number, both in terms of the number of bills that have been introduced and the kind of extreme lengths they go to to repress protests and discourage people from turning out. Well, let's talk a little bit about more of that. I mean, the degree they go to, it's partly the way they define riot, the way they define violence, but it's also like the extension of what is going to be a crime. Talk a a little bit more about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So a common thread throughout these bills is that they use vague sweeping language to define new criminal offenses or redefine existing ones related to conduct that may occur during a protest. So we've seen bills targeting taunting police in Ohio and Kentucky, the new law in Florida that contains this new criminal offense around mob intimidation, which is sweepingly defined. You only need three people who are trying to get another person to do something or to have a particular viewpoint, which uh, sounds a lot like any kind of protest where you're trying to convince someone to do or think differently. Broad prohibitions on inciting or encouraging or aiding unlawful assemblies. Obviously, those, those cast a wide net. And in many cases, these new bills and laws are relying on states' existing definitions of quote-unquote rioting which in almost all states are already very broadly defined in ways that can capture completely peaceful protest. In many cases, you only need a small number of people, whereas, I mean, most of us conceive of a riot as as kind of a large group. In most instances, you don't actually have to cause any damage or, or injure anyone for it to be a riot, you only need to pose a threat or a danger of something, property being damaged or someone being injured. This is one of the many ways that these sweeping definitions can cover, again, completely peaceful, nonviolent protest activity. Well, the problem that I think a lot of folks could see is the broad sweep of it. And yet at the same time, it's not a but, it's an and, and at the same time, we see that they're actually specifically targeted. Florida's law is about Black Lives Matter. It's not about January 6th. You know, like we know that there are particular targets and we shouldn't pretend we don't know. Right. And that's something that we've seen sort of time and time again in in this tracking project, that lawmakers are really introducing these anti-protest initiatives in the aftermath of distinct protest movements. And it's often clear from the text of the bills themselves, as well as from what lawmakers say, what they're targeting. And that's true of certainly of this wave of of legislation. I mean, you have bill after bill clearly targeting protests that take place in the streets. Over 40 bills that would increase the penalty for protests that block traffic. You have, I think, 15 or so that include provisions that create new protections for drivers who hit protesters with their cars. You have provisions that target protests where there's even nominal damage, like graffiti or or even chalking, 
of public property, including monuments. So all these anti-protest provisions are often accompanied by provisions that would penalize local governments that try to decrease the budget for their police departments, sort of anti-defund the police provisions. It's easy to say that the target of this, these bills is pretty clear. Well, I know that another aspect that you look at is the methods, just the gear, the incentivization to use that gear, the militarization. You know, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, which, of course, has a direct impact on all the things we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as Americans saw last summer, it's not just about the law. It is very much about the way the law is enforced And we saw very clearly last summer the way many of our police departments have been militarized, have access to military-grade weaponry, and and how that has been used, oftentimes overly aggressively, in response to protesters. And we certainly have seen legislative attempts sort of going in the opposite direction that would try to make it harder, that would try to stop that pipeline of of military-grade equipment. Yes, that's that's right. Well, I think folks are careful around the language of reform. You know, I think a lot of folks are ready for a conversation about what public safety really means and a really a a bigger vision. But that doesn't mean that there isn't material change that could happen that could be meaningful, that could maybe keep somebody alive. And And I'm wondering what you see legislatively as a response to the problems you track, statewide, federal wide, what do you see as pushback on this wave of legislation? Fortunately, I mean, we have seen initiatives, most often at the municipal level, that are trying to better protect protesters in some instances. So we've seen lots of proposals to restrict the use of so-called less lethal weapons, such as tear gas, projectiles, rubber bullets, these kinds of things. We have seen attempts both at the local and federal level, again, addressing this issue of local police departments' access to military-grade weapons. There was a lot of concern last summer about the deployment of federal agents to respond to local protests. Mm -hmm. And so there are initiatives ongoing at at the federal level to address that as well and restrict the ability of of federal agents to intervene in certain circumstances in a protest that's completely local. Well, I know that your work also involves an international focus, and I think it's interesting that for a lot of U.S. citizens, the idea is that the United States has, you know, we have so much freedom, we export it. You know, we we model it around the world. You know, we're the the shining city on the hill. Uh, Americans don't often see themselves as existing in an international context, you know. (laughs) Um, But in terms of free speech or civil liberties, what would someone with a global perspective on this set of issues say to that in 2021 in terms of the U.S. seeing itself as a model of free expression, you know? Yeah, I think it's really important that Americans don't take these freedoms for granted and don't take for granted that they can freely exercise their their First Amendment rights and, and protest. Working internationally, we've seen how using restrictive laws to suppress protests is really a favorite tactic of governments that are trying to minimize and repress dissent around the world. So whether that's in Russia or in Egypt or in Hong Kong, when governments are looking to to disrupt or suppress kind of opposition movements, 
banning or restricting protest is one of the first tools they reach for. We've been speaking with Ellie Page, legal advisor at the International Center for Not-for-Profit Law. You can find them and the U.S. protest law tracker online at icnl.org. Ellie Page, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Great. Thank you for having me. Arkansas recently became what media ominously call the first state to ban gender-affirming health care for transgender kids, state legislators overriding Governor Asa Hutchinson's veto to do so. Hutchinson, Paul Waldman noted in the Washington Post, is no hero of compassion and equality. He had just signed a bill to prevent transgender girls in the state from playing school sports consistent with their identities. Both of those measures are part of a spate of anti-trans legislative campaigns around the country, efforts that can have devastating impacts. Whether or not they can be easily identified as Republican efforts to scare change-averse folks into voting, and in fact, whether or not they ever become law. Here to talk about what's happening is Christy Mallory, Renberg Senior Scholar and Legal Director at the Williams Institute, based at UCLA. She joins us now by phone from Los Angeles. Welcome to Counterspin, Christy Mallory. Thank you so much for having me. Well, listeners may have heard something about bans on trans girls and women from doing school or club sports with same gender peers, in part because that was covered in sports sections. But the ban on getting trans kids gender affirming health care could be said to be even more fundamental, but really they're part and parcel. They're part of the same campaign. Would, would you tell us about the scope and the aspects of this wave of legislative targeting of transgender people. Yeah, we really are seeing a wave of these anti-trans bills. It's exactly how you've just characterized it. And really, uh, for the most part, these bills target and single out transgender youth specifically. We're talking about trans kids and their participation in schools, in sports, in getting medical care, And this is a a little bit of a change from what we saw a few years ago. I don't know if people remember what happened in North Carolina with the now infamous HB2 there, the law that tried to limit restroom access Mm -hmm. for transgender people. So, you know, that bill was focused on access in buildings more broadly, government buildings. So that would apply to adults as well as youth. But now we're seeing these bills that specifically target youth. And like you said, they come in a variety of forms. So the strategy has morphed into one where there are these different approaches being taken. So you, you know, you described the athlete bans, but these other gender affirming care bills, they limit access to gender affirming health care, medical care for transgender youth specifically. We're seeing a lot of these proliferating throughout the country, just like the athlete bans. So in total, there's been over 100 anti-trans bills introduced in state legislatures this year. There's a bill in North Carolina that's going to require that any teacher or public school official immediately notify in writing each of the minor's parents, guardians, or custodians if a minor exhibits gender nonconformity. That's North Carolina. You know, we have a bill 
that requires parents give written consent for teachers to discuss gender identity. And another bill that says that anytime you talk about gender identity in the classroom, you have to also include, quote, the potential harm and adverse outcomes of social and medical gender interventions, close quote. This is a lot of things that are all aiming at the same thing, and the same thing seems to be dehumanization. People can be confused about what these laws say they're saying. There's not a lot of confusion about what the impacts of these laws would be. Yes, I think that's a great point. The impacts of these laws, again, targeted at trans youth, are stigmatizing. They're harmful. You know, I just want to point out here what a lot of our research done at the Williams Institute and research done by other scholars has shown. That, of course, we can see that these bans, and we've studied this, can harm trans youth when they pass. That is, if a gender-affirming care bill passes, meaning a trans kid can no longer get access even to care that they've already been getting, they have to stop care. Um, or won't be able to get needed care in the future, that has a devastating impact on those kids who can't get what's been provided as treatment and medical care. So that's one aspect of this. Or kids participating in sports and then are told they can't be in their sports teams with their friends, with these teammates that they've built a relationship with, coaches they built a relationship with. But there's also some harm that comes even when the bills don't pass. So like you mentioned, you know, a few of these are passing. We see, though, many also die or are vetoed, have other consequences. But uh, the point is, Even the campaigns, the messaging around these bills, the hostility that state legislators, these elected government officials display as they hear the bills against trans youth, that is all incredibly stigmatizing as well. And even those activities, even when the bill doesn't pass, can really take a toll on the mental health of these kids and their families. Well, the American Academy of Pediatrics, along with all kinds of medical organizations and school counselors, they're out there saying that these anti-trans bills of all of them, but especially the ones uh, opposing the gender-affirming health care, which involves the hormone blockers and different things that young folks might be doing, particularly when they are reaching puberty, these doctors are saying that these bills are going to hurt kids. They're saying it because they know the difference between science and myth. But I think they're also saying it because they understand the difference between human beings and arguments. We're talking about human beings here. And sometimes media coverage and sometimes the way policymakers talk about it makes it sound as though it's theoretical. Yeah, that's right. So we're seeing the professional medical associations, doctors come forward and say this care is right based on science, based on research, based on treatments that have been used for a long time now. And that really also gets into what was the reason for the veto in Arkansas, too, was this reluctance to have the legislature interfere with medical decision making between a provider and their patient. A lot of this legislation is at the state level, right? So I'm just wondering, in terms of response, is there a place for the federal government here? What do you think about that aspect of where the response can happen? We're in a really interesting moment with the federal government. As listeners may know, last year, the Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called Bostock versus Clayton County. And in that decision, the court was interpreting Title VII, which is the federal employment non-discrimination law. And that law prohibits discrimination based on sex. It doesn't explicitly prohibit discrimination based on gender identity or sexual orientation, but it does prohibit discrimination based on sex. So what the court was deciding there was asked to determine whether 
that law as written also prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity as forms of sex discrimination. So this was an argument that had been percolating in the lower courts for a number of years, and many lower courts, including federal courts of appeals, had said yes. Laws that prohibit discrimination based on sex also include discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And the Supreme Court last year agreed with that outcome. So what does this mean? This means that Title VII, the federal civil rights law that prohibits employment discrimination, now prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity as well. So that decision was specific to Title VII, but we see a lot of other laws that are structured just like Title VII. And Title IX is one of these laws. So Title IX, as I'm sure people know, prohibits discrimination based on sex in schools. So Right now, we're in a place where courts are increasingly beginning to interpret that law to prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. That had already started before the Bostock Title VII decision, but is now even picking up more steam because courts, when they interpret Title IX, frequently look to Title VII case law. So we're expecting this to continue. We're expecting courts to continue to say, Yes, Title IX prohibits discrimination against transgender students, and they will increasingly find this. And laws that discriminate against trans students in schools, particularly these athlete bans, will likely fall. We're also seeing a shift in the in the administration's approach to these issues. The Trump administration had taken the position that Title IX does not prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The Biden administration has now reversed that position and says, yes, Title IX does prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, so protects trans students. We recently saw guidance to this effect come out of the Department of Justice, and we're expecting more rules and regulations on this issue. So now we have a situation where federal law is prohibiting these types of discrimination, but state law is mandating these types of discrimination. So there's also this tension there. So We also saw this come up in Idaho when they passed their athlete ban last year, and it was challenged very quickly in court and then was enjoined by a federal judge there in the state. So, again, this is another issue. There's tension. These laws, especially these athlete bans, are likely invalid under federal law. So we expect more court cases to come up. These court cases are expensive to defend. I mean, this is taxpayer money. This is time of state governments, uh, administrative agencies that are already spread very thin. And so I think that's something else the states have to keep in mind. Is this worth fighting given the climate and legal landscape? Well, I just want to bring you finally to media because I think the fact that the battlefield is legal, I think, affects the way that media interpret these stories and the way they convey this information to the public. And I want to say I think it's meaningful that media are talking about For example, the rights of transgender girls, you know, they're using that term, you know, because after all, the premise of much of the legislation is that there's no such thing as a transgender girl. You know, there's there's just a kid who is sick or confused or something, you know, so media are making a certain kind of statement by using proper language. I don't see reporting giving a great deal of credence to anti-science, anti-medical, anti-trans arguments. However, because as a news event, it's a story about partisan lawmaking, it's still getting framed as a debate or as a culture clash. So media are still treating the idea of trans people's humanity as debatable as debatable. 
if you, if you know what I'm saying, you know, um, and I kind of want to see what's around the next corner where journalists just treat trans people as human beings and treat any legislative efforts to say something else as what they are. But part of the concern, again, is that if efforts lose in court, that media will present it as somehow meaningful rather than a need to fight more. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, of course, the media plays a huge role here because the media obviously just reaches so many more people than a decision coming out of a court or even a vote on a bill by a state legislature. That stuff alone isn't getting spread out without the amplification by the media. So I think it's really important that the media treat these issues with respect, even when reporting factually on the outcome of a case or what happens with a bill. That involves, like you said before, really keeping in mind that these are people, these are kids, ensuring, for example, that the correct names are being used, ensuring that the correct pronouns are being used, ensuring that there's not information that would compromise children's privacy getting out into the public sphere. In many cases, these kids don't ask to be in the spotlight. They're just thrust there because they're part of these national debates that do get a lot of media attention and public attention. So I think those are just important things to keep in mind as the reporting goes forward and as we see more attention to these bills, both from the public and from state government lawmakers, federal government lawmakers, and everybody else. And so I think one thing to add to that, too, is just the importance of providing context for this in the reporting. You know, many people don't know that it's not right now against the law in most states to discriminate against transgender people in public accommodations, for example, and other areas of life. So having that background context is also really important. And that's the legal landscape in many of these states that are advancing these anti-trans bills. So they're coming in states that already don't have supportive laws for trans people. And I think that's important to remember is just the entire legal landscape and how it affects trans people in particular. And the one last point I want to make, too, which ties Back to my earlier point about just how stigmatizing campaigns can be for people and how they in themselves can take a toll on mental health is when the media reports on these bills, that's getting to the families who are affected by these issues and ensuring that they're respected and treated as people can help reduce that stigmatization and the harmful effects of hearing all of this anti-trans language, hearing people that are government leaders say bad things about them. So I think the media does play a role here and there's a way to do it very respectfully and ensure protections for trans kids without compromising the media goals and respecting the facts. Absolutely. We've been speaking with Christy Mallory. She's legal director at the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law. Thank you so much, Christy Mallory, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Yes, of course. Thank you so much. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.